Hey, it's Greg Hoffman from Take Command. And the best part about podcasts is they create a 25th hour in the day. Whenever I'm commuting, metro, car, even when I'm riding my bike around town, although in that case, one earphone only, safety kids, I'm always listening to podcasts. And this offseason, you can get all the insights, all the news, all the analysis, and Logan and I occasionally make a joke or two in the Take Command podcast on demand so it fits in to your busy schedule. Follow Take Command in the Odyssey app or wherever you get your pods. This is Matt Spiegel, and I can't wait to bring you Season 2 of the PBP, Voices of Baseball. The very best play-by-play voices in the game talk about their craft. It's a job so special that even Joe Buck told us he will probably go back to it. I'm 53, basically 54. I I think it's too early to say nevers at this point in my life. I think at some point I'll get the itch again. Incredible guests sharing great stories from your favorite teams coming this year. Find us on the Odyssey app or wherever you find podcasts. It's time to take command with former NFL tight end Logan Paulson and former Commander's Beat reporter Craig Hoffman. Welcome into Take Command Podcast. I'm Logan Paulson, usually joined by Craig Hoffman, but he is out of the country right now getting married. So the producer, Matthew Essig, is going to be here with us today. Matt, you want to say hi real quick? Hi real quick. So Matt's going to be helping out just because it's hard to do uh, 45 minutes of talking by yourself. He's going to keep me on the rails. Um, and I think we're going to start today. Well, first off, let's start with the uh, the Brian Robinson news. And again, I don't, I'm don't. i not a detective. I'm not a cop. But all I can say is that like, I'm glad that he seems to be in stable condition today and that, um, you know, like he's, he will live. I think everyone kind of puts this in the context of football immediately. And I'm not sure that that's the best way to go about it. Like he's a young man with a lot of potential in and outside of football, and so I'm glad to hear that, um, you know, he'll, he should be, be he should be okay. And then, you know, obviously if he gets back for this season, that's fantastic because I think everybody knows what he can do on the field, and he showed that throughout the preseason. But um, something that, I, you know, I'm just happy he's doing okay. And, you know, it, imme- it like immediately, like, called me back to, like, the uh, Sean Taylor thing. And I was, you know, in California at the time when that went down, and uh, obviously, like, very emotional for me even then, but I can't imagine what that's like, you know, covering the team and being around the team. And I just think about his family and the interviews afterwards and like how that's not something we're going to have to hear with Brian Robinson. So really happy about that and hopefully he continues to progress. But now that that's off the table and, you know, best wishes to him and his family. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the, uh, the third preseason game. And I think, um, you know, it's really hard to glean anything meaning- meaningful from this game. You know, like um, Craig and I were talking about earlier how it is it's one of those things where you can't really take scheme from it, you know, because they're running very basic offensive and defensive schemes. It's really an opportunity for guys just to kind of put some good stuff on tape, you know, kind of say, this is who I am. This is who I want coaches to know me as. And these are guys who haven't had a lot of opportunity to play. And I think obviously Sam Howell is a perfect example that he had 76 snaps in the game. He played every single snap and you get to see kind of a picture of who he is. Now it's against lesser competition, obviously, but you get to see kind of their mentality and I think that that's always super important. So, like, if you're looking at the skill position players, it's nice to see a guy like Michelle, you know, making some plays down the field. I, I love – maybe one of my favorite plays of the game is when he catches that dig, you know, that kind of 20-yard in cut with the clear by number two and is able to get up off the grass and then run for a first down because it just shows kind of like an awareness – uh, a passion that you don't get to see all the time in regular season football games. So, you know, everyone says, like, would well, you like the third preseason game? In the same way, did I like the third, the fourth preseason game? And my answer is always, like, emphatically yes. <laughs> because I think that, um, I think that it just is an opportunity for guys to kind of be in, like, the purest state of football. You know, like, 
it's the game really doesn't mean anything to anybody except for the people playing in it and so it's really cool to see those guys out there just kind of letting it all on the line and I played in so I played for 10 years in the NFL I was hurt for one year and I didn't dress for one fourth one third preseason game excuse me um, because I was starting that year at tight end in Atlanta but I played in basically eight fourth preseason games and there's something very liberating about those games because it's just you playing in a simple offense just playing because you love football and so I always enjoy watching these games and reviewing the games it's not it's not always the cleanest product that you know there was a whole bunch of penalties a whole bunch of sacks and stuff like that but again it's just dudes out there just letting it all on the line and I think that's always something that um, I'll forever appreciate about the game about the that third preseason game but in terms of guys that I thought stood out and really did an excellent job of kind of separating themselves. Oh, and also, before we continue, John Kime was supposed to be on this podcast. He's obviously not on this podcast. And a big reason for that is because of the Brian Robinson thing. He has television responsibilities with ESPN. He has news articles that need to be written. So hopefully we'll be able to get him for Thursday's pod. So hopefully we're recording on Wednesday, get him here for that. Um, and we'll be able to kind of delve deeper into some of these storylines. And, and what's great about that is we're able to talk about the final roster with him. So that'll be awesome to get that taken care of. But in terms of guys that I thought stood out and did some nice stuff, I already mentioned uh, Michelle. I thought he had a really nice game. Again, just guys that flash. It's so important. Um, Chris Paul, the offensive lineman, did a really nice job. He's, he's had a really solid preseason. I think, you know, there's talk about him kind of being in contention for that ninth or 10th offensive line spot. And I think that that's something um, to keep an eye on. You know, I think he's still very green. And what I mean by green is just like he's inexperienced he's got a lot of work to do but I think there's a guy there that has so much upside he's tremendously athletic he's tremendously strong you can tell he's a smart football player and a guy that you know might be starting for this team in a couple years so um, even if he doesn't make the 53 I think he's a guy that you could maybe sneak the practice squad which would be great but again kind of continuing a solid preseason especially in the preseason games I think he's a little up and down in practice but in the games themselves I think he does uh, a tremendous job and then obviously, um, you know, a guy that I think maybe is, uh, you know, people expect him to play well in the third preseason game is a guy like Jamin Davis, a guy that I think by, you know, it's so hard to kind of say, oh, this play shows this kind of growth. But I just want you guys to think about at home, like, did he make a play like that all last year? And the answer is, I don't think so. And so to see him doing that, to see him making those plays, to see him being more confident, and especially in the offseason, we were talking about all the things that needed to happen, all the growth that needed to happen for him and for and for this defense to be successful. Like it kind of, I don't want to say it's centered around him, but he was a big part of that conversation. And so I think, you know, maybe he's not going to be the best linebacker in the NFL, but I do think you see a maturation and a growth with him. And now just about whether or not he can take that to the year where offenses and defenses are going to be way more complicated and nuanced. And, you know, one of the things that he always struggled with last year was, kind of that read and react diagnostic ability and he doesn't you know he hasn't had to do that because like we talked about in the preseason the games are simplified everything's easier for them so something to keep an eye on moving forward but I think my defensive MVP is a guy like um, Jeremy Reeves and I think he you know he had all those splash plays but again like he's a guy that's kind of quietly had a very very solid training camp in the practices he's had a couple interceptions he's done a nice job and I think that um, I think that for him to kind of show up in that way in the game, I think he's basically solidified himself as the fifth safety. And, you know, do they keep six? Is, um, you know, does someone else sneak in there? I don't know, but I feel like he's that fifth guy, and I think that's awesome for him because, like, he just approaches the game in a way that I just have a ton of respect for as a former player. You can tell, like, he's 
very passionate about what he does. He's very emotional about the game. He's got some intellectual ability associated with it. Like I think about that play that he made where everyone thought he was blitzing. And I think it's just great situational awareness. He said he wasn't blitzing. And I think you can see the things that gave away that play. So for example, like it's a kind of a, you know, they, they start off with the fullback in the backfield. They motion him outside of the defensive end. The fullback's eyes are fixated on the defensive end and you don't motion a tight end or a fullback to that position to run a route. You're motioning him there to block. And I think when you see Jeremy, he recognizes that formation. He recognized the close split of the receiver. And he says, I know what's coming. It's something that in Kyle Shanahan's offense, you'd call truck, which is like two down blocks, a pitch, and then a pull by the tackle. And I think he just, he he's betting you're gambling at that point, but he bet right and he made a huge play. He also had a nice fit on a run, kind of playing that Buffalo nickel role for the defense. And you know, he's a guy that I never associated with that role, but seeing plays like that, it kind of makes you think like, oh, you know, maybe maybe moving forward, he can do something bigger. He can be something better in this defense uh, with that physical skill set and that mindset. Again, I think he's got some limitations from like a movement standpoint, but a guy that I think, you know, for sure is going to be on the football team and a guy that might be changing some people's minds about maybe how he fits in this defense and the position he's playing. And that would be really cool because, you know, Ron's talked about extensively how much he respects him and how he approaches practice and his passion and love of the game. So again, I think that's um, that's pretty spectacular, honestly, that he that he showed out. I'm really happy for him. I think the other guy that did really well that is probably my player of the game, it's everybody's player of the game, is Sam Howell. I think you still see a little bit of his growth that needs to happen, right? Like um, on the ball that De'Ami Brown dropped in the red zone, I think you see kind of his immaturity a little bit. I think it's great, that ball. I mean, he couldn't have thrown a better ball, which is fantastic. His footwork was excellent. His, his release point was excellent. The ball delivery was excellent. But he could have helped the receiver out. He could have made it a little bit easier on Diami just by kind of being more disciplined with his eyes. Like when you watch the uh, All-22 and you see the end zone view, his eyes flash immediately to Diami, and you know that ball is going there right now. And the safety also knows that. And you see the safety breaking and Diami feels the safety and I think that's one of the reasons he drops the football and again you know I was talking to Santana Moss about this today on the show and he was like he's got to make that play like that's his play to make and I understand that I'm a tight end like you got to make that play but as a quarterback I'm sure you're looking at that you're, you're looking at yourself a little analytically there saying I could be better here and that's one way I think he can improve obviously later in the game he had a completion of Blanton where he's he's great with his eyes he's moving safeties and he's he's got that in his game but again, I think that's something you can get more consistent with to get himself to that varsity level. And also, I think that, um, you know, he's the, the other thing that I really admire about his game, quite frankly, is the competitiveness. Like how many times did he slip out of a pressure? Did he roll off a sack and then kind of scramble for a first down? And again, when in those games, you want to see people who love football and people say, well, how do you know whether or not a guy loves football? And one of the things that sticks out to me is plays like that, effort plays, where it's like, I'm gonna do, I'm gonna go the extra mile. I'm Michelle. I'm getting up um, after the ball, after the, after I'm on the ground. No one's touching me down. I'm gonna get a first down. I'm Robert. Pa I'm Jared Patterson. I'm gonna roll over this guy and kind of sc uh, scrape and grind for that first down. And then Sam Howell falling out of, uh, you know, falling off of pressures and stuff. I think is just fantastic. And I want football players like that on my team. And this is an opportunity for those guys to show that. Now, um, I think that's a good recap of the preseason game, at least as I, as I saw it. Again, there's not a lot of 
X's and O's to kind of delve into there because it's pretty simple. I mean, they're running RPOs, which are kind of day one installs. You know, Sam had a lot of success with that. And I think, again, that shows maybe where Scott Turner thinks of Sam Howell. You know, you want to give him easy throws and easy reads, and he did an excellent job with that. But I think it also shows maybe how the staff views his processing in terms of greater defense, uh, offensive scheme, excuse me. But again, something that, again, executed well, love the play calls, really happy with that. Now, I'd like to shift gears a little bit and talk more generally about the preseason as a whole. And so real quick, um, just uh, I I agree entirely with everything you just said, and especially going on how I mean, just looking at his stat line, 24 of 35 passing for 280 yards, eight carries for 62, because that's a a thing that we didn't really see too much of in the preseason up until on Saturday. His work with his feet is outstanding and his ability to just say, I we need to figure out getting that first down we need to figure out just getting moving the chains moving forward a little bit and to be able to scramble was something I personally didn't see coming into the game and was very excited coming out yeah absolutely and I'm really glad you brought that up because that's something if you watch this college tape you see quite a bit is you see a guy who's maybe not the biggest guy in the world but seems to have outstanding contact balance and an outstanding quickness and when I was evaluating him coming out of college I was like does this skill set translate because he's not a big man You know, he's not like a Cam Newton. He's not elite, elite fast like um, Lamar Jackson or Michael Vick or any of those guys. He's he's kind of uh, a different type of body. But he's, again, like that competitive nature comes out. And so, yeah, I think it's great to see that. I also think it's great to see that they do have some quarterback design runs in the offense, which they've shown flashes of with Carson Wentz at quarterback. But it's nice to know that that's there if they need to. Because, again, that's something that, you know, if a quarterback is struggling, like you can always lean on that package to kind of simplify reads and make defenses play you in more basic structures. Uh, and I'm speaking from experience with that. Like when, um, you know, Robert Griffin was here in 2012, like the amount of simplicity that those quarterback design runs bring to a defense is just so next level. So the fact that that's in the offense, I think is a good sign from Scott Turner. Not that he's going to use it, but just to have that in the bag, I think is really important. Um, yeah, so I think that, that that's, a, that's a great point there, Matt. And you said you didn't like to talk. Look at your <laughs> great radio voice and everything. Awesome. Hey, everyone, this is Brett Boone. Would you know it? I've got a podcast going strong in our fourth year. Tune in as I sit down with my friends, some of the biggest names in sports, media, entertainment, for a lot of fun and in-depth conversations. As you know, baseball's been my life. It's been in the family for a long time, but it's a lot more than that here. It's sort of like taking a ride in a golf cart around a beautiful track. Join me every week for multiple episodes on the Brett Boone Podcast, available on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll be glad you did. This is Take Command, and we're going to go into phase two of this. I'm Logan Paulson, that's Matthew Essig, and we are going to talk about preseason general overview thoughts here now, and like what can we derive from kind of the main 
three games so far. The three, the three games, the practices, all that stuff. And unfortunately, this answer might be really short because I don't think you can derive a lot. I think you can, um, like, you know what I'm saying, yeah. Matt? Like, no, I'm, I'm with you because be- it's it's been a preseason of a whole lot of getting to. It felt like this season was or this preseason was a whole lot of let's get to know the players, let's get to know on offense or the receiving core. How does Carson Wentz play into the core? How is everything kind of going to run together? And then on defense, we were looking for some kind of scheme, some kind of just anything, a spark that we hadn't seen in the past year. And mm-hmm. I think that we can all agree that <laughs> defensively, we were all a little upset coming out of a mm-hmm. Saturday, especially because our secondary secondary was kind of a sieve. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And I think, you know, it's so funny, like when you watch practice, and you see how well that group plays together. You're like, oh my gosh, they're poised for oh, something really special. They got, like, they got the in, the energy. They have the camaraderie. It, it's there. Right. If it just was there on the field. <laughs> Absolutely, and I think that's the thing that was that was frustrating for me. And again, like frustrating for me in the first game. But then if you look at the second game, that group played really, really well. And then they kind of switched. They they flip flopped, right? Because. Excuse me. The um, you know the defensive line played really well against Carolina, and then they struggled against Kansas City. Now that's Patrick Mahomes. That's a whole bunch of different things. But the secondary was the thing that improved against uh, Kansas City. They were able to you know kind of blanket coverage and did some really nice stuff in terms of matching up. I think he felt great about what Kendall Fuller did, and even William Jackson the third in that game, despite the PI, showed a lot of stuff. And I think you know you just need that group to come together. They're so incredibly talented up front with that defensive line. They've got all those draft draft picks invested there. They've got some great role players in Casey Tuhill and James Smith-Williams, but they just don't seem, at least in the preseason, they haven't clicked together. Now, I want to point this out before we get on to something else, and you bring up a good, I think that concern you have, Matt, is is very, very valid. But the thing that sticks out to me is that I don't think Jack Del Rio is doing in the preseason what he's planning on doing in the regular season. And what I would point to is I'd say at the end of last year, they were much more consistent with bringing five-man pressures playing five-man fronts, and people say, well, why is that significant? Why is that important? And what that does is it ensures one-on-one matchups for your defensive line, right? And, I, and I'm assuming that Montez Sweat, Payne, Allen, even Casey Tuhill and James Smith-Williams, Feldarian, Feldarian, Mathis, yes, can win those one-on-one matchups consistently. Daniel Wise is an excellent pass rusher in those one-on-one situations. So I think that's all, that's all important to think about. Like, he did not do any of that in this in the preseason. I think that's going to be a bigger feature of what they do. Also, Jamin Davis has shown some proclivity, at least in practice, as a blitzer. So having him involved in that five-man rush, I think, is going to be important. And so, again, if you can get those one-on-one matchups, I think the issues that you saw against Kansas City of Patrick Mahomes escaping the pocket, like it's something we talked about. Yeah, ahead, I yeah. mean, it's one of those things that has to be said. As much as we did see some issues against Patrick Mahomes, we are talking about Patrick Mahomes, who is yeah. one of the craftiest quarterbacks that if you can do anything against him, then I consider that at least positives. Maybe not a win, but we're ma- moving positives if we're able to make some kind of moves against him. At least that's my take. But No, I, th- I think that's tr- I think that's true. And I think, and again, like there are some positives defensively to take out of that game. And I point to the coverage yeah. and I say, I look at Montez Sweat and the way he was more active in that game than he was the first game. Those are all good things. It's just about bringing it all together, bringing the making sure like uh, filling out the philosophy like right now I think we have a nice skeletal view of what the defense is but there's no soft tissue right the details of what makes that 
thing go are not there. And I think a lot of people are concerned because obviously last year it, it has seemed to have bled over into this year. But I, I do think you'll see some different stuff once we get it. You know, it's funny. Like, I, I've been to every training camp practice. I've watched every single one. But all of a sudden now the media is not allowed to go. And now this is when that stuff's going to go in, right? This is when <clears throat> you're going to see what they're going to do against Jacksonville. You're going to see kind of who they want to be. And I think that stuff is super important uh, for fans to understand, quite frankly, because I think a lot of people don't think about that, you know. And then reversely or conversely, it's the same with the offense, you know. The offense is looked a little bit tepid. It's looked a little conservative. Like we talked about it a couple of podcasts ago, like how they didn't take any shots on second and short against Kansas City when that's like a global, universal NFL time to take a shot. They didn't do that. And again, that makes me think they're – they're not idiots. Scott's not dumb. Like, he knows what he's doing. Like, yeah. he's keeping stuff, right? And I think that's also something for fans to understand. And that's why it's so hard to say, oh, this is what the preseason was. This is who this team is because we don't know. Like, there's a lot of stuff that they're putting in, like, after cuts tomorrow. They're going to put a whole bunch of stuff in, and the team's going to look completely different. Like, I think this is something that we haven't talked about on the show before, but, you know, I coach at Independence High School, which is a high school football team, right? And I was like, you know, I hated when I was a player – coaches who put in all these game plan specific plays right and I do that now as a coach and one of the reasons you do that is because it puts your players in the best position to be successful and so week to week the offensive again I'm going to use the skeleton analogy kind of is there the 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 framework of the house is there but each week the details of the drywall the windows all that stuff goes up to put the team in the best situation to be successful so even week to week there's going to be a lot of variation from an offensive standpoint I would assume that kind of puts this group in the best position to be successful. Again, that's one reason why it's so incredibly difficult to glean anything meaningful. Now, I think the stuff you can glean is like personnel stuff, and we can talk about that a little bit more, I think, which would be important. Ab- so I'm going to talk about – yeah, go ahead. I, I was actually – I was going to say I wanted to kind of lead into that. Um, who, yeah. based off of the preseason, based off of Saturday's game – who do you think has really shown that they deserve a spot on the roster? Who do you think has kind of, mm. at this point, maybe get, gotten their last chance, to, so to say? Yeah, I think that's a really tough question. And um, I think I think most positions, like just take receiver as an example. I think you've got Jahan, Terry, um, Cam, uh, Curtis Samuel, uh, Cam Sims, Diami Brown, I think, makes it despite everyone kind of calling for his head. I don't. Th- I think he's going to be on the team, and then I think you get Dax Mills. And the question there becomes: Is Alex Erickson, um, eight, number eighty-six? Yeah. Does he is he your returner, and is that seven? And I personally think you probably could get a, be okay with Dax Mills, but again, that's a decision that has to happen internally. And you know, it's not that who's the better receiver, Erickson or Mills. It's Erickson versus. Milo Eifler, you know, as the fifth linebacker. And I think Milo Eifler's had an outstanding preseason. But is Milo Eifler more valuable to you on special teams than Erickson? And I, I think you could make the argument that the answer is yes, especially if you have Dax Milne. But that's the that's the roster alchemy. And let's talk about Milo for a second, just because you I brought Go for it, it by accident. Like, I think Milo is a really interesting prospect right now because he's had a really solid preseason. Like when you went, I went back and watched every single one of his plays. I was like, this guy's shown up. He's shown up on teams. He's shown up um, on defense in terms of being like kind of big plays, playing with good energy, rallying to the football. Love that. And the guy who's been really quiet is Kalik Hudson. Now, I don't know if he takes a step ahead of Kalik, you know, because Kalik's kind of been this 
mainstay on teams here. I think Katzer, the special team coach, really likes him as a player. Um, but does Milo, does he, is that enough of a testament to him to say, I deserve to be on the roster? The answer is I don't know. And the only people who do know are the people in the building. But those are the, that is interesting, right? Is he? Do you keep four linebackers or do you keep a five? And if that five linebacker is there, right, where do you – and shoot, I'm kind of rambling now, but the Brian Robinson thing, however tragic that is, that affects – the rest of this depth chart, Absolutely, right? Like Gibson, where do you keep Gip- him? Because with keeping him, where do you keep him? Or do you have an extra spot now to open up? Because is he going to be on the inactive football injury list? Correct. Yeah, yeah. Pup yes. list, uh, physically been able to perform, or IR, or whatever yeah. it is. And the IR has now got different gradations, right? So I think that um, that's really interesting to me. Like Jonathan Williams has been the guy, but now. Because of this injury, do you sneak Jared Patterson in there? I don't think so. I think it's Gibson, McKissick, Jonathan Williams. You keep three. I don't think there's merit to keep four unless you feel like uh, now with Gibson starting, Patterson's your kick returner, which is entirely possible. Again, but, uh, you know, if Erickson stays, you don't need that guy because he, he returns kicks and punts. So um, that's, again, like all these things. Tight end is another fascinating position battle, I think. I think that's a little bit more clear cut, but it's complicated by the fact that there's so many injuries at the position, which I've talked about before. Like Logan Thomas is coming back. He might not be ready for week one. So he's on the roster. He's there. He's here, right? John Bates is here, but can he play week one with the calf injury? I'm not sure, right? That's a big question mark for me. He hasn't, Ron hasn't said anything. John hasn't said anything. He's been very quiet, but is he ready for week one? Big question mark. So there's the potential that you start the season in your first game with both of your starting tight ends not being ready to play. So then you go to number three. You say, oh, well, the next guy's Cole Turner. He's also been out with a hamstring injury, right? So you, now you're all the way down to your to Curtis Hodges, who's got a quad strain, who didn't play in the game. He hasn't played for two weeks in the preseason, despite having a really nice first preseason game. So the only healthy guy you have at the moment is Armani Rogers, the undrafted free agent rookie out of Ohio. And he's a heck of a football player. He's improved each week, and I think he deserves to be on the roster. But do you need someone with more experience, like, like a Kendall Blanton, to also be on the roster? just in case you have to start the year off with like Bates, God forbid, or Cole Turner on IR. And then you go into the game with two starting tight ends, one who's never played football in the NFL and one who was cut by the LA Rams and is now here with the team. So again, like that's that's why that position's so interesting, especially for week one. Obviously, I've talked about extensively how talented that group is, but it is it, like, what do you logistically, when it comes down to week one, what are we doing at the position? And I'm fascinated to see how the roster cut turns out because, again, very talented group, but the injury situation makes that so interesting. Um, any other positions we want to talk about? Uh, D-line, I think is – D-line? Yeah. Okay, let's talk about D-line Absolutely. real quick. Is is interesting because I think there's – you know, it's a defensive end, an edge rusher. It's pretty straightforward. It's like you got Montez, you got James Smith-Williams, you got Casey Tuhill, you got F.A. Obata. Those are your four. And then you got your four defensive linemen, interior defensive linemen, which are um, Payne, Allen, Big Phil, and uh, Daniel Wise. There's your four. And so do you keep nine? And if so, who's the ninth guy? And the ninth guy, in my opinion, like if I was picking today just on film of practice, film of the games, it would be um, Bradley King. And Bradley King is because I, as a coach, I know I can trust him. I know what he's going to bring, right? But, you know, I had a conversation with somebody the other day, and um, I'm not going to say their name, but they brought up a really fantastic point. 
And basically what they were saying was like, you know, he'll, he'll be the ninth guy. You keep Bradley King if he's your if he's in that four top four rotation at edge rusher, but that guy's probably going to be inactive on game day. So while I while I have a lot of respect for what James Bradley or King or not James Bradley King has shown, William Bradley King has shown on film and the consistency with which he's played. This person I spoke with said I, I would probably go with Shaka Tony as the as the ninth player because Shaka Tony has this tremendous potential as an edge rusher, and I, and I see that there right because he's a guy that you feel like you can develop that has some situational pass rush ability. And I've had multiple coaches tell me like this is not like multiple organizations organizations multiple coaches that if a player shows any any type of pass rush ability. You try to keep them around as long as you can. And Shaka's shown that. So despite his inconsistencies, despite some of his kind of lackadaisical body language and approach, I think there is a really, really solid chance that he is part of this team because of the upside that he brings, as opposed to the consistency of William Bradley King. So that's really interesting. And then obviously the one that I think is a total crapshoot right now is the secondary, specifically the DBs. I think you've got your kind of starting cluster there of um, Kendall Fuller, William Jackson III, Benjamin St. Just, um, Johnson, I think, is the four. And then after that, everyone's kind of looked average. I was a big, I was very, very high on Christian Holmes early in camp. He looked amazing. He's gotten quiet, and he didn't perform overly well in the preseason games. So I think he's a very good candidate for practice squad, but I don't know if he makes a 53. So that, to me, that's probably the biggest question mark of the whole thing. You know, the tight end's interesting because of the injury, but I think you know kind of where those people rank. DB, after those first three, maybe four if you include Johnson, it's really up in the air. Kind of who likes, like, what is the coach like? What is Ron like? What is the position coach like the best? And that's how that's going to shake out. Um, and we already talked about safety with Reeves, yeah. but yeah, I think I think the DB thing is going to be really compelling to watch. All right, uh, right on. I'm <laughs> I'm with you. I <laughs> I, uh, I I personally, so I'm most looking forward to. I guess where I'm really looking at and just am intrigued is with all of the injuries, specifically in the lineback, in the tight end position. And now in running back with those being kind of what we've looked at for, throughout the entire preseason as the most up in the air just due to injuries or positioning. That's where I'm personally tomorrow going to be looking to see how they manage to meet that roster requirements while still week one being able to put out a team. Because you could keep all these people sure. and have a fantastic team come week two, week three, when everyone's healthy. But we <laughs> need to be ready. We need to put a team out for Jacksonville. And I feel like sure. there's this sort of disconnect for, oh, we have all these great players. But how are we going to be able to keep them on the team with still being in, having injuries and being able to make sure that we put out a good product? So that's what I'm looking forward to the most and kind of yeah, I th- and I, the outcome I, I think that's fantastic I think that's fantastic insight alright this is Take Command I'm Logan Paulson that's Matt Essig uh, Craig is in Europe getting married I think he's already married he's hanging on like a honeymoon now which is pretty cool congratulations um, I guess yeah congratulations to him yeah I should have said congratulations <laughs> earlier but I was so nervous I forgot um yeah so congratulations to him obviously john kine was supposed to be here not here because of the brian robinson thing so we're going to do a little bit of q a right now we have some questions that we've come up with that we're going to kind of uh, close out the show with for 15 minutes or so what do you think matt good idea? sounds great 
And you're going to be answering these, right? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> if the, any questions are deemed more towards swimming or NCAA swimming, then sure, I'll take it. If you if you have any you if you have any questions about a stroke technique, I got you. Other than that, probably not my uh, not my thing. <laughs> are you uh, you big swimmer? Uh, yeah, I actually I was an NCAA uh, D one swimmer. I swam up at Stony Brook University. Go oh. Sea Wolves! Um, That's awesome. Had a great time up there, and uh, then after the team went under Title Nine. Came back home, graduated from Marymount, and uh, I'm a okay. I'm a local boy. I grew up in I started out in Burke, Virginia, then went to in Arlington, graduated from Yorktown High. So I'm a local boy. That it was all the DMV swimming, all that jazz. Yeah, well, that's awesome. What 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 events did you? Do? I was mid distance freestyle and backstroke. Uh, so the, what's mid distance like a mile? Two hundred free, five hundred okay. free, four a.m. two hundred back and. I could do a thousand if I had to, but let's be honest, I kind of kept those times hidden from my coaches. So because I really sure I didn't want to. <laughs> so yeah, I thought you know swimming how hard could it be? I remember I broke my foot in college, and they were like, "Oh, go up to the pool and swim a couple laps." And I was like, "All right." And I think they said something crazy like swim like ten laps, and it wasn't. I was like, "Oh yeah, ten down and backs, no big deal." And I did one. And I was like, I might drown in this pool because like I was I was there unsupervised. So a lot of respect for swimmers and what they uh, what they bring to the table. No doubt. Thank you. Um, but I gotta ask, as a one athlete to another, uh, obviously your career went a lot farther and was a lot better than mine. But I gotta ask because we've had a lot of questions regarding just the Washington franchise, Washington's coaching style. What makes consistency in the nfl mm. like if we're looking at a program how do they stay consistent sure. what makes a program stay con- look consistent all that yeah so i think there's two parts to this question that we probably could talk about one is like consistency for a player and what is consistency for an organization and so let's start with the organization and then matt just remind me to come back for consistency for a player okay. so organization yeah organization organizational consistency um, is interesting and like I feel somewhat qualified to talk about this not entirely but I've played for a whole bunch of different teams in various stages of rebuilds or playoff pushes or whatever they're doing and one of the things that I think is is critical is just getting the right people in the building and what does that mean like that's getting the right coaches so so for example when I was in Atlanta it was a year after they had just won the Super Bowl and they were kind of on the verge of a total rebuild, right? You can tell you can tell things weren't going the right direction. The head coach was the same. A lot of the players were the same, but it wasn't trending in the right direction. And I look at that as an example of, you know, uh, Dan Quinn is one of the like most fantastic human beings you'll ever meet in coaching. He did an excellent job of building a culture of players who wanted to compete and fight for the organization and for him. The problem was when they won the Super Bowl, Kyle left. And Dan stopped calling plays. He stopped. He like, kind of transitioned from being the head coach, defensive coordinator, to just head coach. And so they had to hire two new coordinators. And obviously, Kyle is one of the most brilliant football minds in the entire world. And losing him kind of made the offense take a step back. So making sure you have, A, the right coach, because there's an example of you have the right head coach. You have a guy who is a great motivator of people. But also those coordinators are extremely important for building kind of your brand and your culture within 
within the team, right? Because, like, what is your identity? Kyle has a very clear identity of what he thinks good offensive football looks like. And Dan had a very clear defensive philosophy, which, you know, got them basically four and a half minutes from winning a Super Bowl. And so when those people left, like, being able to identify, hey, we need new pieces here. We need new new coordinators to kind of address this. And then that coordinator element's huge, but also there's the player element, right? And the player element is just making sure you have the appropriate amount of talent in the building at all times so like when i was in houston for example uh bill o'brien was the was the coach there uh coach kelly was the offensive coordinator and i actually thought they had a pretty outstanding staff just generally guys you know romeo cornell was the defensive coordinator but over the course of probably three years prior to me getting there um you know they had let the talent kind of slip out of the building so despite kind of being a very schematically relevant team and organization they didn't have the right personnel in the building. Now, that personnel can be covered up by one per, one position in particular, and that's quarterback, right? And you look at the New England Patriots as being the perfect example of that. And so they had excellent coaches, and they also had excellent personnel, and that was defined by Tom Brady at the time, right? One of the best, quarter, the best quarterback maybe of all time. And so obviously there's the head coach, the coordinators, the X's and O's, the general personnel, where a team like, I think a good example of that was like Seattle in 2012, where they had Russell Wilson as quarterback, a kind of growing Russell Wilson, but outstanding defensive personnel and outstanding offensive personnel surrounding a young quarterback. Or Joe Flacco in Baltimore is another great example of that, right? Or Ben Roethlisberger in Pittsburgh, right? Really good roster. Those teams are very hard to sustain because instead of needing one good player, which is your quarterback, you need 21 other good football players, right? So when you then then you turn to Tom Brady and the Patriots or Indianapolis or New Orleans where you find that quarterback and that's one thing about the draft and free agency and why the quarterback market's so crazy because if you find that guy you can hang your hat on that player for in Tom Brady's case 20 years you know and you can have an organization that's competitive just because you have a competitive quarterback and I think that that's something that's important for really for people to understand about consistency, right? You can either go, we need 21 good players from a personnel standpoint, or we can find one who can kind of help us overcome the deficiencies of the roster. A great example, I think, of this is the Cleveland Browns, and say what you want about Deshaun Watson, but they viewed him in that same light as a generational type of player, the third highest graded quarterback in PFF whenever that was two years ago. So obviously a very dominant player, and they thought this is what we're going to do. We're going to change our culture with one player, and that's why those people get paid a lot of money. Patrick Mahomes, great example. And so that's it from a player standpoint, but just a reminder, you've got coordinators you've got position coaches who kind of build your offensive defensive culture and your head coach that kind of is the ceo of the whole thing and does a really nice job so i think that's that's to me kind of the model the general super vague high level model of what consistency is in the nfl for a team or an organization and i think for a player it's something entirely different and so what i mean by that is like because everyone's been talking about deami brown and his lack of consistency right and one of the things that you know I've kind of learned over my time in the NFL is the guys that can come in and be the same exact person every single day are the guys that make excellent pros. And so you know Ron has talked about Jeremy Reeves, and you know he's getting a lot of pub right now because he had a great third preseason game. But one of the things Ron says about him is he's the same guy every day. He comes in, he's excited to practice, he's motivated, he's dialed in, he's studied, he's making plays. That to me is what a good pro is, and that 
there's some things in there that lead to consistency, right? You can tell he studies. He loves football. He embraces certain kind of difficult elements of the game, in this case, practice, right? And that is a consistent football player. The guy who's inconsistent is the guy who maybe doesn't love football, right? Maybe not overly passionate about it, and it shows up in his inability to study, in his inability to prep, in his, in his inability to do the things that aren't glorified by the position. So, like, if you're a receiver, like, do you block? If you're a receiver, do you make that tough catch over the middle? And I think you can easily compare juxtapose what Diami did to a guy like Michelle on the roster, right? A guy who's getting whacked over the middle of the field trying to make the team. And Diami who's kind of like, man, I got to be playing in this game. And I understand the difference in approach. Like, it sucks playing in that game if you're a guy who thinks you deserve more. But also I think it shows you some of the, the reasons – in his personality that potentially make him not a consistent football player is like how much does he really love it does is he is he born into it does he want to die for it and the guys who are great pros like julio jones matt ryan like some of the best dudes i've been around they love football they go home and they they have to like the wife has to pull the cowboy collar out of their hand the clicker that they used to watch film because they are obsessed with it and i'm not sure that there's that level of obsession with Diami, and I think that shows up. And again, this goes back to that draft eval process, right? I was able to talk to one of the a scout with a different organization. I said, like, what's the most important element? And he goes, obviously, there's like the physical. Like, can they physically do it? But like, we spend more time on the mental side of it. Like, are they wired the right way for football? Do they love ball? You hear that all the time. And if you want to hear a scout, like, just kill it, kill. A, a recruit instantly basically say like he's not we, we shouldn't draft him they will say he does not love football because everyone knows in the scouting in the scouting world that that is a coffin nail when it comes to you know how that because it how that guy's going to develop and I think Diami like when I watch him I question his love of the game and obviously it's led to kind of some tenuous development issues you know what I'm saying things where you haven't seen him progress over the years so to me it's do they love they gotta love it man it's like everyone says oh i love football whatever like you don't know you don't know if you love football until every single day it's like hey we gotta go to practice it's like groundhog day every day every day you know what i'm saying and like if you're not getting better you're getting worse so i think that that's something that um for me is is a good indicator of consistency when it comes to players I think also what you're talking about, just in regards to the consistency, is a lot of players buying into the system and being okay with being like, sure. I want to be a part of that. And I guess regarding that, when you have some players who aren't, or are like Deami Brown, who aren't hitting all of the metrics, who aren't being super consistent, who aren't doing the extra bits that you need to do to be able to compete in the NFL, how do you get those guys on board? I think it's tough, man. I think one of the things about the NFL is when you talk to coaches, you hear them say like, it's not my job to develop you. And I've had coaches say that to me when I was a rookie. I'm not here to develop you. Like if you, if you don't do well, I'm going to find somebody different. Now I was an undrafted free agent at the time. So like my, I call it my leash was very short. My margin for error was was very short. A guy like Diami was a third round pick. The team's invested draft capital in him. He is a guy that is, has has ability people identified he was very productive in college when you watch him play you see his ability and i think that's one of the reasons fans get frustrated is because they say he's got the talent look at him like look at like what he's doing but it doesn't it's it's a lack of consistency and the consistency i think stems from this idea that like 
these these really good college players are oftentimes like brought along by the coaching staff. They're kind of say like they're they're like insulated. They're like a baby. They're coddled a little bit. And now all of a sudden, like when you have to be a self starter and you have to be self motivated to find these improvements, right, in your own game, like they don't show up because you don't do it. So, to me, it's the it's not the coach's responsibility. And this is me as like an old, like I sound old right now. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like it's not the coach's responsibility to bring you along. You have to find a way to get yourself to where they're going. You don't want to be like the kid at the supermarket that's being dragged by their parent, right? You want to be running down the aisle and they're trying to catch you. Like, that's what you're looking for here. And I'm not sure that he's doing that because I'm telling you, if he was a lower round draft pick, like, he wouldn't be here. Like, that's just like the nature of the business, right? It's There's other people foaming at the mouth to get in his position. Like, do you think McGowan or Michelle, like, do you think they have to be prodded or poked? No. Absolutely not. Like, they're dying. Do you think Cam's, I mean, uh, Cam Sims is a great example. Guy who started slow in his career, but then figured it out. And so I think that's what you're hoping for with a guy like Diami is that he's got the physical tools. One day the light bulb's going to go on and he's going to become a hell of a pro. So I think that's it. So like when you say, is it the coach's job or is it the organization's job to bring them along? No. The people that actually brought me along the most in my career were other players. Like, you know, we had London Fletcher on here last week. And he was, I, I said this, this at the time, he was one of my biggest guiding lights in my professional career. Because I could always be like, well, like, what would London do in this situation? Or what would Lorenzo Alexander? What would Mike Sellers? What would, you know, Kedrick Golston? What would Chris Cooley? What would they do in these situations? And the answer was always like, it always kind of steered me in the right direction because those guys were consummate pros who love football. And then they would give me guidance because they saw that I wanted to come, that I wanted to be where they were at. And that that's another thing, you know, like that is maybe important is there's not really like an old head on this team. It's a very young team. And what I mean by old head is like a veteran in the locker room, right? And those guys are important, you know, not because of their play on the field necessarily, but because of what they do for teaching young guys how to be pros, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. All right, so I think that takes us to the end of the show. Thank God, that was a lot of talking. Hope you guys enjoyed it. If you did, please, uh, you know, subscribe to the Take Command podcast, which is anywhere you get your podcasts. And obviously, Craig will be back. I don't know when he's back, two weeks from now, next week sometime. Obviously, hopefully, we'll have John on this Wednesday. Fingers crossed. He's a very busy man. But, Matt, thank you so much for coming in. And uh, you did awesome today, man. And you really saved my butt. Thank you. And you're welcome. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. All right. So see you guys uh, on uh, Thursday when the, when the next pod- podcast drops. Thanks, guys.